Welcome, everybody. So if you know me, whenever I preach, I always talk about a little bit of context, kind of important, nothing, well, hopefully I'm not doing something so random that it's unrelated to anything else that's going on. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, possibly even longer, I don't know how long Clayton's been doing this, he has been really focusing on identity. And there has been significant impact in the church, and there's obviously reasons why, but identity is such a core thing of who we are as believers. And he's, one of the things, and to explain why this is so significant, he's also been mentioning just out of his heart, just as he's been reading Nehemiah. And if you know anything about Nehemiah, the very short version of it is that he had favor by the king. But the favor was prompted by just a desire in his heart because of the compassion that he had for the exiles because they were living in, in literally in a, in a situation where the walls had broken down. There was no protection. And in ministry, it gets very simple sometimes. And sometimes it's good to see the simplicity of it. That in people's lives, when there's a situation where their identity is not established, it's literally as if the walls have been broken down. And we understand, we don't live, well, in South Africa they do, they have walls, they have fences. We don't necessarily think about that in our context here. But it's about protection. Because if you have no protection, then the enemy is free to literally seed in ideas and literally daily harass you to the point that that's all you're preoccupied with. And you can't actually get onto the business at hand. And identity is just happens to be one of those things that when it is not established, it is as if the enemy is free reign to literally come and disrupt every part of your thinking, and it's a daily thing. You can't actually escape it, and that's why it's so significant. So there's a lot that he mentioned, and I will not even try to summarize that. He does a very good job of summarizing. But let me say this. One of the things he said I loved, and I've used it as a title of my sermon, partly as tribute. The title of this sermon is... It is not about you. So you can feel the love in my heart when I say that to you. It is not about you. Okay. He talked about it last week, so everybody knows the context if you're visiting with us. But to summarize, here, there was a distinction that was made in the last few weeks. And it's very important to understand because we live in an era and a society that has embraced this, con this concept of humanism. And with humanism, it really is about the individual. It is about the man being at the center and becoming, in a sense, the measure of all things. That's humanism. We know it is not about us. You, in the context of the kingdom, you have benefited greatly by the king. You've received salvation. He's given you your righteousness. He's literally bestowed his favor upon you. And these have all been made available to you, and yet it is not about you. So, of course, the question should come to you, well, what is it about? If it's not about me, what is it about? And I know the easier answer is God, because that's kind of, you don't have that many choices if it's not about you. <laughs> but there is a biblical basis to understand the purpose behind the identity. There is a why behind why you are who you are and why you're designed to be who you're supposed to be. And, and I didn't give any of these scriptures to Andrew, but I'm going to go walk through some scriptures just to provide some context of answering this question, what is it about? And I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Clayton already touched on some of this. Starting at verse 24, it says this. Then the end will come. That's encouraging, isn't it? Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom, this is speaking of Jesus, 
when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is the end game. The end will come when every amount of dominion and authority is put fully under the feet of Jesus and he hands it all back to the Father and God is now all in all. And that is the end. You see, we don't talk about this much. It was actually part of the daily conversation of answering this question. What is the chief end of man? This used to, they actually spent a lot of time answering that question. What is the chief end of man? And it is this. This was their answer that they came up to based upon the scriptures at hand. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man. And as you can appreciate in the context of modern human, secular humanism, that is the exact opposite of what they would actually endeavor to believe. You see, you say, well, how is that true? I mean, and there are scriptural swaths. I'll just give you one example. Romans 11, verse 36. For, for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let it be. That is the end game. There is the chief end of man to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And this is not in debate. This will happen. Because Jesus said very clearly, as I left, so I will come. He said he will come back with, great, with power and great glory on the clouds to be seen by all. And nobody is going to mistake and every knee will bow when he comes. And there's going to be entire dominion of everything, all authority and dominion placed under his feet, everything now established, and then he's going to hand it back to the Father, and everything gets wrapped up, and we will enjoy God forever. So you say, well, okay, that's the end game. What does that mean for me? Why am I here? I understand the chief end of man, to glorify God, but we still have a responsibility. Because I think if you are very honest, or you don't even have to be that particularly insightful, if you look at the world today, you would say, certainly this isn't true. Certainly not every aspect of dominion and authority is now under Jesus' feet. But some is. And increasing, in increasing measure, it will be. And that is part of the role that we play. You see, Clayton read this scripture. Romans 5, 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and, of, and the, of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Reigning in life. What does that mean? So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks about the one body, many parts, and we always talk about that in the context of there's diversity. I actually spoke about this last time. There's diversity in the body. Uh, people say, well, I want to be that. I wish I was that. I'm not that, and I don't feel like I'm part of the body. And it's talking about all the distractions, divisions, the, all that stuff, right? But the key aspect to think about and to understand, it is a body, and Christ is at the head. So when it speaks of actually everything being placed under his feet, speaking of the church, that the church, in its all its many facets and parts, that there is dominion that's actually being exerted by the body to increasingly put everything under their feet, under submission. 
And that is something that we see increasing measure. Man, if you're head of your own house, you know whether you have everything starting to become under your feet or who's ruling or what's going on. It's pretty obvious. But the church's role is that in increasing measure, every situation of which we encounter, the people that we happen to meet, that there's increasingly understanding that it's all under the authority of Christ. And it is a process. So to say that you are actually to reign in life implicitly is saying that you're increasingly taking upon your role to bring things in submission to Christ. You have that ministry of reconciliation. And that's part, of, part and parcel of the church's responsibility. Now, I spoke a few times ago about winning. And my short answer summary of my message was, you have to win. Because when you win, things literally are coming under the authority of Christ. You're expressing dominion. There is submission of the things that literally would desire to bring you under their submission because somebody's in charge all the time. That's a plain fact, and you have to know who it is. But God desires for you to bring situations under submission. That's called ruling, that's called reigning, and that's called winning. And it's never, ever been a situation or a call or an expectation of which he played no part. It is always in the context of a cooperation and always in the context of assistance. See, every amount of favor, every amount of blessing that you receive is part of the package for you to then go and express in your identity rulership. And the problem that we have, which is really the issue that Clayton was speaking about in the concept of these last three weeks, is that we implicitly understand that there is a role that we play, and yet we don't have the right lens. You see, the way we started in this process was that, you know, and he, he spoke about sonship as a precursor to identity and, and Jesus being the obvious model for us because he's the firstborn amongst many brethren. When Jesus was baptized, he went into the desert and was tempted. And what was tested? His sonship. And before Jesus had actually done anything in ministry, not one thing in ministry, when he was baptized... The words came from heaven for all to hear, but most importantly, for Jesus to hear. He was settled in it, but the words were, this is my son, whom I love. In him, I am well pleased. Without doing anything, there was no aspect of performance. Without actually having done anything, he was affirmed as a son and said, well done. And the fortunate reality in the context of our mission and the context of identity is that many haven't started that way. So what I'm speaking about is actually to, obviously to discuss it, but have us appreciate that there is a proper lens by which we have to view our identity. And where you are in that process of your identity will dictate how you actually view your role. Now, Clayton may alluded to this, and we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
And it's provocative in the sense that it talks about aspects of your identity and without the right lens, it's going to seem condemning. It's going to be like, really? I, why would I want that? So I'm hoping to kind of push the issue and I'm trusting that everybody can kind of evaluate where they are in the lens that they're using. So there's three different examples that Paul uses to describe, in some sense, our role. What is our, the, what is, what is our responsibility? How can you describe such a thing? And starting verse 3, he says, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, we know we're in a war. Whether you want to be or not, you are. If you're a believer, you, you are in a war. You can ignore the fact that there is a war, but you're still in it. And Paul uses this first description of a believer. And it's not, depending upon the lens, see, there's many different ways to read that, right? And you think of war, you think of the army, you think of what it's like to actually be in the army, and you could look at it in many different ways. So, Andrew, would you keep up? This might be some people's view of what it's like to be in the army. Now, this is a drill sergeant. I found this picture. Drill sergeant, fresh recruit, doing push-ups. That actually may have been, at one time, your view of what it's like to be in the army, to be in the war, to be a soldier. Absolute performance. In the slightest misstep, you feel like God's screaming at you, expressing disappointment, never quite measuring up, totally functional. Okay, you can take that down, Andrew. See, in, chapter, in, in verse 3, it says, endure hardship. And when you're in a war, I wish I could say otherwise, there are casualties. There is sacrifice. That's just the reality of war. And the interesting question is, as it ends, it says, what, he wants to please his commanding officer. And who's that commanding officer? It's Jesus. He's the head. And this is the one point that Clayton was harping on again and again, is who are you trying to please? Because if you're trying to please man, you're effectively beholden unto them. And that will lead to disillusionment very quickly. Your identity has never been in others. Your identity has always been in God. But you happen to be in a war. And it's not as if you're a fresh recruit with a, a staff sergeant screaming at you because you had the slightest misstep. And it is a process, I understand. Andrew, put up another picture. It's another way to look at war. See, war is not just something that you happen to be in. There are always strategic targets. There's always a coordinated effort in the war. And I took this picture, one, because there's no faces, obviously. But there's an aspect of the training and the aspect of coordination that to me is just part and parcel of being in a war, being a soldier. 
And I, I picked this specifically because last time I spoke about each person being a unique work of art, trained to do a very specific task. And this is, in a sense, a special ops. And it's always been about the work to be accomplished for the commanding officer, but it's never in a purely functional context. Andrew, you can take that down. So as you can see, there's a very different way to look at being a soldier, one of which is very me-focused and how I feel, what I feel like I need to do, but the other one is looking at embracing a much broader picture of the strategic nature of what we do. Moving on, it says in verse 5, Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Again, that word competes. Endure, suffer. I think you're kind of getting the picture that you know, the way Paul's describing our identity, there's a lot of hardship. There's not rainbow and unicorns. There's endurance and suffering. And it says, according to the rules. And it's just as I thought about that. Actually, hold on. Andrew, put up the third picture. This is what most people's understanding and appreciation of the race that they run is. Solitary, often futile, running in a circle often without appreciation because there's nobody cheering you on nor appreciating the amount of effort. And that is sometimes the way we embrace the race that we run. Okay, Angie, you can take that down. It says it's according to the rules. And we understand the law. But in every race marked out, there's always direction of where it's to go. I'm not a racer, I'm not a marathoner, but I think the worst idea for a marathon is to go off course and prolong the journey of which should have been shorter. There's a dependence upon the voice of God that to me is part and parcel of running the race. So a better picture of you running the race, Andrew, go picture number four. There is guidance, there is direction. The word of God, either prophetically or through encouragement, through the body, is always an assistant to the one who is running the race. I wish it was true in my life that I ran the race perfectly, never missed a stop or a rest stop or a particular turn. I wish I was so fortunate. God's desire has always been to assist you in the path that he has marked out for you. Because he has marked out it out for you, there is always assistance of directing you in that path. Thank you, Andrew. And lastly, as I'm just using this to try and help you assess kind of what lens you're using to understand your identity. And they're admittedly somewhat provocative. And the last one, it says in verse six, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Again, hard worker, hard working. I think you kind of get the, I don't need a definition of that word, but I will anyway. It's labor with wearisome effort to exhaustion. That's what it is. And without the right lens, this is what we look at. Num picture number five for a farmer. 
very little fruit, everything dry. And you need to understand something that an unredeemed man, this is an accurate picture of your toil here on earth. This is an accurate picture. Why do I say that? Genesis 3.17, after the fall, this is what was said to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. For the unredeemed man, that is, that's life. And the key point being, for the redeemed man, I trust this is not the picture that you have of your life as a worker in the kingdom. Thank you, Andrew. Take that down. It says, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Last picture, Andrew. There's a harvest. In my experience in the church, in my experience talking to many people, This is actually a really challenging picture in this way. There are many, and I trust that if you previously thought that like this, that you've changed. For many people, it is actually quite a challenge to be believe that God actually wants you to succeed. You say, Dwayne, come on. I mean, really? No, and I'm saying, really. For many, the idea that God wants you to succeed, that God would have you be fruitful, that God would have your impact to ever increase, measure upon measure, cup overflowing, that's a challenge. And yet everything I see in the scripture is exactly that. There is a harvest. There is a fruitfulness that God would have for you. Of that, I have no question. But to receive that as actually an understanding of God's desire for you, not so simple. Thank you, Andrew. So three different pictures. The soldier... The athlete running a race and the farmer. And depending upon where you are on, this, on your identity, which is why we believe it's so important to talk about it, it can lead to very different pictures and understanding of exactly what that means for you just as an ordinary believer. And I say ordinary not to put that down in any way, but to be provocative in the sense that the ordinary believer exerts the very authority of God and brings things in submission under his feet as part of the grander plan of the church putting everything under its feet so that Jesus can hand it all back over to the Father. The very plan of God and the very identity that you, would, you should acquire is one of dominance, of winning, of rulership, and of reigning. Not the tail, but the head. See, 2 Timothy was written by Paul, and, and most people agree that this was the last written part of the gospel that he wrote. This is, this is either the second time he was in prison or between the first and second. 
So he was near the end of his life. And for those that approach the end of life, they have an amazing clarity to put everything in perspective of what they saw from their past. What is important, what is truly important is crystal clear what is, and what is not important is quickly dismissed as being exactly that. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, and this is what Paul said, summing it up for him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, I have presented this in a way that was intentionally designed to get you to examine your own life. To actually push the point of exactly where does your identity lie. It is by no means, as I said, meant to be condemning. Because I understand what God's desire is for each and every one of you. And it's the latter picture, not the former. And not only does he have that for you, he wants you to actually live in that place. He wants you to win. He wants you to be fruitful. And I trust I'm not receiving a lot of resistance in that. But I kind of, I've seen this happen before. Do you believe that God wants you to succeed? I'm not actually looking for an answer, by the way. I'm just... Because <laughs> if you could actually accomplish one very thing of what Clayton is going to continue, because I think it's important enough to really hammer home, because the value of such a switch in thinking, which is a transformation of you by a renewing of your mind, is going to pay dividends far in the future. Why? Because you're not going to fight yourself. Who am I? Why am I here? What is, my, what is the point? Why did God make me the way I, he made me? No, the point is he made you the way he made you. A handiwork of art for a particular purpose to bring things under submission by the authority of Christ, to hear his voice, to be keenly aware of the direction to take in the race called your life, and to produce much fruit. That is you, without exception. It is not true on a Tuesday, but not on a Wednesday. It is true every day. It is true whether, when you're sleeping, when you awake, when you rise up, when you go out, when you come in, when you lay down, and every day begins to mesh together. It is true every single day of your life. And every thought that you have that is contrary to God's vision of you is a lie. And any time there is a thought in you that rises up that I do not actually have a joyful expectation of what is to come, that means that lie has been believed. And that was never God's intention. Never. We, th we talk so much about entering his rest. Entering his rest. The Sabbath rest of God. That's what I'm talking about. That you could wake up, face debilitating situations, either emotionally, physically, 
or by opposition, and yet this still reigns true in your mind. Because your spirit is dictating to your mind what is true. Your spirit is dictating to your emotions what is going to drive you that day. And always a, a, a joyful expectation in God reigns supreme. That's living in the Sabbath rest of God. Now, if you don't feel like that's your everyday existence, join me in the rest of the club. But make no mistake. If that is not my process of being conformed to the image of actually growing to, into Christ, then I've missed the mark. Why? Because I never set it as my mark. God is for you. He is not against you. I wish that wasn't controversial, but apparently it is. Because sometimes I feel like I need to work to convince people of that truth. Now, let me just talk about just one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this was that, as you all know, as it's been announced, we're going to move in a couple of weeks. And that may have impacted you in many different ways. And I wanted just to use a lens that I just put out there of how should we view this as part of identity because it applies to us individually and corporately. But I wanted to view this process and this season, however it works itself out, I wanted to use that to examine that particular situation, to put some reality to this because I love theory, believe me, I get it. But it has to apply to us daily. So we're moving. See, the thing about being a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, the common thing about it is there's endurance. There's hard work. That's probably not the best calling card for Christianity. Come into the kingdom. You're going to work hard and endure. Not the biggest sell. Yeah, you are the lone exception. But there's a reality to this. If I told you there wasn't a cost... I would be lying. So look, let's look at, so I wanted to speak about Chesapeake Church. Some of you may not even know who Chesapeake Church is. It's Free Life Church prior to rebranding. Chesapeake Church, formed by a group of individuals. Jim Cryer is here. I don't know if the Taylors are here. Jim Cryer was part of that, Jim and Bonnie. Group of, group of individuals came together and just had a heart for what they believed God was speaking to them about the potential for a church. And that was over 14 years ago now. And many of you were here in the beginning. I was here closer to the beginning. Many of you not. Of this, I can say is true. It was hard. Why? Let's use, let's use the lens of the soldier. Any church plant is frontline warfare any church plant. If, if the community, it's not that we were the only, there was no church in the community, but it is, in a sense, forming a, you know, actually a beachhead kind of moment. And there has to be a group of people willing to pay the price to actually have something be established, a new territory. And it was hard. And there are some people that still bear the scars of some of that. There's some people that got burned out. I'm just speaking the truth.
and of what I could say, which I see now in the scripture just as clearly as I can, for those in this context of a soldier, for those that were willing to put in the work to please him, those are the ones who are the least likely to be disillusioned. Because you can come and do it for a man, and I'm sure there's always a mix of everything in between, but you do it for a man, if you're in this game to please a man, to please Clayton, I like Clayton, I'm not here to please Clayton. And he's okay with that. The fastest way of disillusionment in the church is to put forth the effort to endure to please a man. We're not here to please a man. And I implore you that in that context of a soldier, please the commanding officer, that is Jesus. There's an audience of one, always has, always will be. And yet he desires you to bring things into submission under his feet, which is you and me. The athlete, the athlete running a race. Again, it's hard work, it's endurance. One of the things I feel like we have been so blessed by in Chesapeake Church and now Free Life Church is that the voice of God has come, either prophetically, in different seasons, and however we move on from here, that has to, it has to remain true. And part of actually adhering to the rules is just being, believing the words of God and obeying the words of God. I'm not saying anything revolutionary, but what I'm saying is that what we hope to be true as part and parcel of this church, which I believe we've endeavored the best that we know, have we made every decision correctly? Probably not. But even to move to this next venture in two weeks, I am so thankful because that is about an easy decision as I could have imagined. And that decision has nothing to do about where I think it's gonna go. Because I can play you know, the cost-benefit game you know, to rational decision-making, but we, didn't, we don't do that. I cannot predict to you where we're gonna be in three months. I will not, I'm not even gonna try. Of this I know. The impetus for us to move, that wasn't even our call. They're doing renovation here. We had to move. The diligence was done to search things out. And I know I'm just repeating, but I'm putting in this, in this lens. The diligence was done to look at alternatives, and there ended up being one. And not only was there one, there seemed to be the grace in it, which God, in some sense, making it the path of least resistance, even though it was just one path. As for you, if you're, if you're a decision make, maker like me, I love easy decisions. And all I need to know is that, you know what, God? The best that we know is this where you're telling us, leading us to go. And if I believe the answer is yes to the best that I know, I'm okay. Because I don't need to see the end. I just need to know that I'm adhering to the rules, which is the voice of God saying, this is where I'm having you to go. This is the turn I'm having you make right now in this season. And that's enough for me. But all of that is conditioned upon an understanding that he has my best interests at heart. That he desires for Chesapeake, now Free Life Church, 
to succeed and to grow. And that's what we're trying to do, adhering to the rules. Lastly, hardworking farmer. Again, I, don't, I, could, I could probably pull every single person here and ask them, so how's your experience been in the church? Has it been, has it been easy? Good. Has it been simple? Has it been without pain? And I would get zero hands. Well, maybe some babies. I think Michael and Matthew probably would say, yeah, I get to play on a phone every time after service. Aside from them, I think most people would say, yeah, it's, it's been actually very difficult. And I'm not going to embellish that beyond that. All to say this, which is a challenge for identity. And I have to challenge myself. If I understand my identity, not only individually but corporately, this is where I have to get to. God, you said, as best as I know, I've tried to follow your word and your leading. You did not plant this church. He actually gave us this word. This church is not here just because he needed another church. It's not this idea of fungible churches. I'll just get another one. They're all kind of the same now. For a particular purpose, for a particular reason, handiwork of God, just like you individually. Why? If you don't ask yourself the question why, I implore you, start to do that. And this is how I need to challenge myself. There is an answer to that question, and that answer is fruit. There is a harvest. If all of the, the church, and I'm being very honest about this, if all the church were farmers, I think our job to actually be a church would get really easy. Because farmers have an implicit understanding of work, of seasons, and of patience. You don't have to convince a farmer to be patient because they know implicitly there are seasons to sow, there are seasons to reap. Northern Virginia is not very good at patience. Northern Virginia is very good at spinning and doing things and feeling like they're accomplishing something. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. But the challenge for me in thinking about this lens is that there is a harvest that he desires. Not because I want it, it's because he desires. In two weeks, we start something new. I'm excited because I don't know what it's going to be like. But if he's got this for me, then I'm especially excited. Now, I'm giving you some of my personal theology and understanding of the way I think, okay? And for me, sometimes the Christian faith boils down to this. And some of you, I've told you about how I talk to my boys. But for me personally, sometimes when, I, when people ask me, so how are you doing? People ask, like, the job that I'm doing. It's like, well, how's it going? And I'm like, well, you know, if I could be real, sometimes I'm very discouraged because it doesn't look so good. And the best answer that I know to give in many situations is like, well, as best as I know, this is where I'm supposed to be. That's it. That's as much as I can say. And if as best as I know, this is where I'm supposed to be, then I'm adhering to the rules, the markers in the race I'm supposed to run. And whatever provision 
he has is going to be on his mountain, not mine. And that's why it's very important for me to be on the right mountain. Because it's not just any mountain, it's on the mountain of God that you find provision. So there's a lens that is required for us individually and corporately sometimes just to navigate life. But make no mistake, he intends for you to reign. So Clayton's going to have a lot more to say about this, but I just want to close in a prayer, and I trust I at least had you think about some things. So if you want, just stand up, and I'm just going to pray. I don't need to belabor the point. Lord, I thank you. Just even as we sung during worship, you be glorified. To you be the glory forever and ever. I pray for us as a body, which includes us individually. But I pray for us, and I say, Lord, let the reality increase that you are for us and not against us. Let the reality increase that you desire for us to be fruitful. And let the reality increase of a people that should call themselves blessed. And in the name of Jesus, I bless your people. I say over your people, be blessed. Be blessed. Let their thinking be fruitful in every way. For thoughts that would seek to put performance and of a strain that is not from you, I just cut that off in the name of Jesus and I say, let your thinking be fruitful. Let there be an ease by which you will go about your day, every thought, every waking moment, I just bless that in the name of Jesus. And even as your people sleep, I say protection over their minds in the name of Jesus. Let nothing disturb, let nothing intrude, let the one thought of your goodness remain. And I say, let your people be blessed by that, for you are good. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.